Well, we are starting into our Christmas series. Great to see you guys this morning. And we are starting in on a conversation about Christmas, and uh, especially when it comes to the songs of Christmas. Any Christmas song lovers in the room? I love Christmas songs. Anybody else love Christmas songs? I listen to Christmas songs a lot. I try to write Christmas songs. They're not very good. But I just really enjoy just Christmas music in general. In fact, um, what's been interesting over the last few years, uh, I used to listen on the radio and listen to Christmas songs. And just because I didn't want to like download everything on a phone or something like that. But to be honest, uh, one of the things I've noticed, I don't know if you guys noticed, about three years ago, kind of in the malls and everywhere else, they stopped kind of playing the religious Christmas music. There are so many now secular Christmas songs out there that they kind of dominate the radios. They dominate the malls. I mean, everything that you can think of from, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. It's like, I hate that song. Who invented that song for goodness sakes? Like, who, who, just like, yeah, I got a great idea. It's like, huh? Uh, Or, or then there's the, you know, I, I think the most popular Christmas song out there right now because of the movie Elf, is that song where the two people are singing back and forth because it's cold outside. Have you ever read those lyrics? Dude, man, that's a hashtag Me Too moment waiting to happen right there. It's a, they're just bad. One of the lines is literally like, uh, baby, what's in, or what, what's in this drink, I think is one of the lines. It's just so you're like, what? Uh, so yeah, that's Christmas music for you, right? No, I, there's those great Christmas songs that we all love, like, um, you know, Mama got ran over by a you know reindeer. That that's great, and uh, all the Santa songs. And there's I'll be home for Christmas. I actually love that song. I love um, have yourself a, very, a merry little Christmas. Um, I grew up listening to the Crooners. My parents had a record, and they would play it. And it would be all the big bands with the Crooners singing all these awesome Christmas songs and just belting them out there. And nowadays, I just thought, I'm just feeling like what's going on with most of our Christmas music is, to be honest, it's kind of missing something. There's a hollowness to it. There, everything's about sun and, and, and sand and snow. And like, I'm thinking a lot of weird new songs that are out there. And some of it is just kind of plain and good old, I'm on a date with my, my baby at Christmas to uh, I'm expecting the big fat man to show up in my house on Christmas to you, you name it. There's all kinds of stuff that goes on in Christmas music. And I feel like what we're losing is the point. And Christmas just isn't Christmas without the point. As you saw in that video, which by the way, this was all hand-drawn and made by our um, by somebody in our church, which is pretty awesome. That was a pretty cool, yeah, you can give that a clap. That's really cool. And so just Christmas, this idea of Christmas being Christmas without the point really brought me back to the conversation of, you know, Christmas music makes the point. Christmas music in the church tries to make the point. Music is powerful, not only to move you emotionally, it's to move you mentally. It's intentional with lyric and emotion to bind together, to motivate us and to move us in our souls. And so when we start looking at the Christmas music that we have, I believe it needs to be an opportunity to step back to remember what Christmas is about because I think it's getting to a place where we're beginning to even wonder what in the world is Christmas about. There was an article just out last week on why kids should not watch Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because of the bullying and the racism and the meanness of all the reindeers in the movie. And they literally were attaching it to all this intersectionalism and stuff that's going on in the culture to argue that it's just bad for our souls. And it was another attempt to take another icon that was pointing back to the redemption that occurs through Jesus Christ at Christmas as painted through all these various characters and these various people as an opportunity to just go, this, this is pointing. We don't need to do this. But why would we give gifts anyways is kind of the question that's beginning to be asked. 
Why, why, why do we keep putting up with our whiny children and our, and our frustrations that they don't like the gifts that we give them or whatever? And that's not my kids. My kids love their gifts every year. And we just, uh, why, why do we keep up with all the lights and the most expensive time period of our year that we all didn't expect? Why is it that all of us suddenly find ourselves looking at our budget going like, why didn't I think of Christmas? It comes every year. Why don't we just give up on this thing and throw it out? And I really believe what we need to do is get to a place where we have got to save Christmas again. The way that I'm going to go about attempting to do that is by taking an opportunity to call us into some older Christmas songs, the songs that are sang in the church. Don't mind the man who came behind me. He's grabbing uh, my clicker that's been messed up since last service. So just FYI. And as we are moving into this opportunity, I want to point us to a couple of Christmas songs. And I want to point us to the expectations that they bring. Because what's going on in our culture is we can oftentimes substitute a lot of small things when we lose the point for the big point. I'll give you an example. Let's take predictions you know, there's a lot of predictions that, uh, that are in the point of Christmas. And predictions are important because they preview or they produce our expectations. Let me, let me give an example. How many other previews do we want, predictions do we end up with in our secular culture? For example, your children are at home, if you have children, or you might be at home at a certain point, sneaking around looking for your presence, right? And then when they're finally there under the, under the, under the tree... Who of you as adults don't actually come up to one and look at your, find your name on it and give it a little shake? I know you do that. We all kind of look, we want to know what's inside. You're, you know, it, you're weighing it. Maybe you're picking up and you're going like, ah, that's light. That's underwear. You know, and then there's just, you know, that's, that's how we think. We're making predictions about our presence. Some of you are making predictions about the weather, right? All the time we're looking at predictions on the weather. Is my party going to be rained out? When's the snow going to hit the mountains? I want to hit the ski slopes. When's this going to happen? What's, weather is a constant look at during Christmas time for predictions. Another thing that we're constantly predicting about is, hey, what's that next Star Wars movie or Marvel movie going to bring in this Christmas and we're going to find out about it? I know lots of people predicting stuff about that let alone all of you guys predicting how your teams are going to do because you've got your fantasy football team on the line and needs to do better. You're trying to make your best predictions because the trade deals are going to end really soon. And we're making predictions all over the place, especially during this Christmas season. But uh, let's be honest, what, what good is the predictions? They're fun, they're interesting, but they don't have a meaning. They don't have a substance. They come and they go. And yet what I want to do is point us back to the fact that predictions preview or produce expectations. When your children shake that box and they say, I think it's Legos and it's not Legos. What do you do as a parent? What do you do as an uncle? What do you do as a friend? Your gut goes, oh no, it's the wrong present, right? Because they just previewed what they wanted. They previewed their expectation. And now you're imagining this poor child crying because he didn't get the right present. Or imagine that we, our, pre, our predictions actually are producing an expectation. That's what happens with the weather. When it tells you it's not going to, or it tells you it's going to snow, and you go up to the mountains because it's going to snow, and it doesn't, you're upset. When our expectations don't match our predictions, there's a problem. And that's what's going on with a lot of people at Christmas. Their expectations are high about the traditions and about the family and all this stuff, but without the core of what this is really about None of those predictions are going to bring true wonder eventually. Eventually, you'll burn out on Christmas. Eventually, the wonder of Christmas will vanish unless you have the point, which is Jesus. 
What I want to do is I want to talk about predictions. I want to talk about expectations, especially as it pertains to these two Christmas songs that you have in your, uh, in your handout. I actually gave you guys the lyrics to the two songs we're going to be looking at today. The songs are, um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Come Thou Long, expected Jesus. Two songs that honestly don't, don't have a, are, are kind of different. In fact, a lot of our older song, a lot of our older Christmas songs don't have a lot of understanding with their meaning. When you look at the words like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, you're like, what? Who's Emmanuel? What? I mean, I work with an Emmanuel, but I mean, this isn't the Emmanuel I'm expecting. Or maybe it's the idea that you're, you're looking at it going like, okay, what, what, hark the herald angels sing. You know, I, I love that. Well, I think it's Lucy and one of the peanuts goes, who's Harold? Because a lot of the words in our old Christmas songs just don't make sense. And when we don't mine into them, we lose the meaning. And what I want to do is mine into a couple of these, especially when they pertain to expectation. Because these songs are built off of predictions that were known that brought expectation at Christmas. And so as we dive into them, I want to take a look at this. Because it starts off, especially, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. And they're getting into a very set of predictions that I want to point out this morning that build the expectation of Christmas. Predictions of Christ that actually produce high expectations, very high expectations. You see, Israel dwelt in a time period in the first century. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab these. I'm going to kind of lay this out for you guys as best as I can as a timeline. So right here in the middle, we'll call this zero. And um, everything going that way is AD. You are all the AD people. You're in the, you're in the future. And, and all of you are the BC people. Brutal, brutal people that you are. And so this is, um, this is the BC. Last week, they were the sheep and you were the goats. This week, it's backwards. So what we have here is a picture of a timeline. In this time period, right around here, the Jewish people were living under the tyranny of a Roman Empire. They were being told what to do. They were being taxed. Only a few, only one century earlier, they had been free and to run their own ability, their own kingdom. They had beat the Greeks away. They had come to a place where they were strong. It was called the Hasmoneans. They were this victorious kingdom. They were so excited about it, only to fall under Roman rule and Roman oppression continued to push down. And suddenly there was this rising conversation. We need, like of the old, a king who's going to lead us forward. We're looking for this one. And they knew there were these predictions of this one called the anointed one, this king who would rise up and conquer all of the people around them, bring in this anointed or messianic or Christ period in which he ruled and reigned. And it would rise from that and evolve. And they were looking for it from this time period. Now, as you look at this, you go, well, why in the world were they looking at it? Was this just hope? Was this just an idea? No, they had a specific set of prophecies that we're looking at. They were building these um, expectations, a set of predictions. And we find one of them in Daniel chapter 9. And I want to read this to you because it's a very pivotal, important verse when it comes to our expectations of predictions at Christmas. It starts off, it says, A period of 70 sets of seven have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place. So it starts right off, really confusing, right? 70 sets of seven. What is this? This is roughly 70 sets of, of seven means 70 sets of seven years. And it's an idea of 490 years has been decreed for all of these events to finalize for Israel. And, for, and, and basically 
Daniel, who is living back in the past and a time period under the Persian government, is predicting this roughly about 590 BC, somewhere back here. And what he's doing is he's predicting about a set of events that are going to come forth. He's had an angel visit him. It's this whole story about him as a, uh, as a royal official in the middle of just Babylon and Assyria, two ancient empires. And as we look at what he's talking about, he says there are some sets of predictions that are going to happen. All these things are going to occur. But I want to start off here. He says, now listen and understand. He starts to interpret it. 70 sets or seven sets of seven, that's 49 years, plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler. Now, what's interesting is we know that there was a command to rebuild Jerusalem given by a man named Darius, who is the king, or Asherias, as he's also known, who is the king of Persia. It was kind of the common thing for the Persians to say, okay, you guys, head on back to your hometowns, rebuild them. We want you guys to be happy. And so we know that that command was given in 457 BC. And so, he laid, and so that was laid out for the people. And this command then was going, and 49 years later, in 408 BC, they had finished the completion of the city of Jerusalem and the temple that had been burned by the Babylonians. And we know in 408 BC, this was completed and done. And so we have these two dates as a beginning point. I do this on purpose because I could get you all confused about multiplying sevens, and I'm not the best math guy around. And I could get you into like, well, there's 69 of them, and there's one set of sevens left, and that equals this many. Let's just understand that... What Daniel is saying is, look, there's going to be a command, and eventually, very quickly, within the 49 years, the city's going to be built. You can read about this in the Bible, in the especially Hebrew Bible, in Ezra and Nehemiah. This is the decree that was done. This is the work that they did to build that time period. Once that stopped, though, there was, there was a consensus, like, what's, what's going to happen next? So they say there's 62 sets of sevens passed from the time command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. And then he goes on to say, after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. So we could calculate 62 sets of seven from here. And if you were to do that, you would wind up with, and I think it's 457 years or something like that. And I'm, again, I'm not the math guy. All I know is it lands on 27 A.D. 27 AD, this particular individual steps out of the baptismal waters and begins to pronounce the kingdom of God. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. Eventually, he claims that he's the Messiah. In fact, he claims more than he claims he's God who's come on earth to bring Israel together and to bring the nations together, that he's the messianic king and that he's come to seek and save the lost. And so in this is also a, a very interesting thing because the, the other boundary line, though, is this. This anointed one will be killed, appearing to accomplish nothing, and a ruler will rise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. Now, this is the final date we do know. This date occurred in 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., there is an event. Well, that just fell off. In 70 A.D., this event occurs in which we find... The Roman people, the Roman Empire has attacked Jerusalem. They're done with their little revolt. They've surrounded the city, and Titus has been given charge by his father, who's just become the Caesar. 
And Titus sacks the city for an entire year, starving the people out, causing them to actually gather around and literally they'll be eating their children. It's horrible. They have invited people into the city to bulge it out and it's this horrific event. And eventually they break through the walls after a year of siege to an emaciated people, destroying them, entering into the temple, looking inside and then tearing it down brick by brick to scrape the gold from it and burning it completely to the ground. The temple that was built in 408 BC is done in 70 AD, completed. When we understand that that is what's happened, these are the two time limits. Between here and here, a Messiah is supposed to show up. It's no wonder Israel was looking for them. And lots of people claimed to be Messiah in this time period and after, but it was very clear he had to come before the temple and the city are destroyed, 70 AD. When we see this picture then, we go, well, how, what happened to Jesus? Well, we know what happened to Jesus, right? He was crucified. He, became, he was crucified in 30 AD or 33, depending on how, how you look at it. But he was cut off, appearing to have done nothing. And so suddenly what we have is Jesus, the right timing appearing. And it was all in line with what Daniel in literally 590 claimed. That's a prediction with an expectation, and it landed perfectly. Now, you can step back and go, well, how do you know he's the right guy? If all these other people are claiming Messiahs, they didn't do nothing either. That fits the prediction, right? What if it's not just like, uh, you know, John, the other dude, you know, the other Messiah guy? Well, how do you know it's not Bar Kokhba who comes later, and then they sack the city again in the Bar Kokhba revolt, which is an actual reality um, uh, that'll happen 70 more years later. But... What we have here is a question. Is Jesus really the Messiah that we should be looking for? And how would we know? And the answer is found in a whole set of other predictions. You see, that's what I want to call us to. We need to look at all the predictions that happen at Christmas that bring us to these songs where we're singing, you know, come thou long expected Jesus, not come thou long expected, you know, somebody else. And so as we look into this, what I want to point out to you is a few of these other prophecies, because our expectations on Christmas are fulfilled when we examine these Christmas predictions. First of all, there are 300 prophecies about the Messiah, and Jesus fulfills them all. 300. So get ready. This is going to be a long service. We're going to be here a long... No, no, I'm not going to cover all 300. In fact, what I did is I asked Carl Blanke, who's right now running an apologetics class upstairs at the top of the stairs. If you're interested in getting deeper into this conversation at the end of the service, next week he's going to be picking up on the prophecies and rolling through them upstairs. Great conversational class. Bulge it out. We'll bring him down here. I'll preach upstairs. However we need to do that. But it's an awesome opportunity to invite a friend who doesn't know Christ to come and listen to this because I believe if you dig into this far enough, either you're going to want to share Jesus with somebody this Christmas, or you're going to want to receive Jesus this Christmas. Because what you're going to see here is some pretty amazing stuff. When you dive into this, I can't do all 300, so I'm going to pare it down. I'm going to pare it down to what I think are the strongest. And these are the ones that are accurate. They're not like an Nostradamus who's sitting around going, and history will be in the Blizzenkrock, and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, what? And it's so vague, you can make it anything you want, but it's World War II. No, it's not. You don't really know. So we're going to look at accurate, specific, and it has to be prior to the event, prior to Jesus. These can't be things that happened after Jesus and were written after Jesus. And last, they have to be uncontrolled. So that Jesus can't just go like, well, I read it. I'm going to do that. Right? I'm going to make that prophecy happen. These have to be things that he couldn't have controlled. So I'm going to start off with ancestry. How about that one? 
you can't control ancestry. I can't control my ancestry. And his way was to be specific. If you can control your ancestry, I'd love to talk to you afterwards how you did that. That'd be fascinating. But you can't control it. Your ancestry is your ancestry. And the Messiah was to have a specific kind of ancestry. And we find the first prediction of this ancestry in the book we know as Genesis. Now, before you go like, oh, that's Genesis. Hold on. Just think of it this way. This is what, uh, this is the original manuscript that becomes Genesis was called the Torah. It was written in the 1400s BC. It has been um, given and passed down from that point. Yes, it has had additions to it and things that have been adjusted because language changes over time. And it was edited to be a part of a whole, a larger piece. But the piece that we're looking at here is specifically from this old Additions. What we see here is he's talking, God is talking to Abraham. He says, listen, in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. That's a singular. He says, in your seed, in a particular person, in one of your particular ancestors, all the nations will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Let's just step back and just say, um, this, they thought of this as a messianic prophecy. And what they're saying is that this, this person has to be a son of Abraham. He has to be somebody born of Abraham's family. Now, we know that the Ishmaelites, which is a whole group of people that will uh, claim that in the Middle East today, they're from Abraham. We also know that the Jewish people claim they're from Abraham. So which group is it? It's a great question. As the book continues, Moses would write that it actually comes from the Jewish people. And not just all the Jewish people, but one in particular, namely the people of Judah. And as he as the old man Jacob, or Israel, is sitting over, over his people, praying over them, over each of his sons. He prays over Judah this prayer. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And what, what is said is that in 1400, Moses was predicting that the leadership would never depart. And people have always viewed this as a messianic prophecy, that this one who is going to be the tribute, Shiloh, this one who's going to be peace, is going to be the one who has the scepter. They are going to be the ruler, the king from Judas. So now we've limited it down out of 12 brothers to one line. Well, they had a lot of kids and it's been a long time. It could be a lot of people, right? Not really. Because we find out, Later, in about 930 BC, another prophecy comes out. In this case, it's given to a king. His name is David. He's been the man after God's heart. He's the person who's above all the other kings. They consider him the model. And one day he's praying and he's saying, you know, God, I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a house. I built myself a nice palace. I think this place is pretty cool. I want to build you a nice place. And God goes, thanks a lot, but no thanks. You're a man of blood. I'll let your son do it. But I do want to bless you. And so he gives him this blessing in 2 Samuel. It's written down and known to us. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise your offspring after you. Again, that word seed. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he's saying, listen, there's one who's going to come from your seed, your offspring. It's going to come from your lineage. He's going to be a line of David. And that looks really great. As you start reading your Bible, you'll read First and Second Kings, and there's king after king after king who comes from the line of David all the way until Babylon takes over Israel and punishes Israel. And then there are no more kings of David. Even in the time period where they take back their kingdom, none of those kings are from David's line. In fact, when you read about Herod in your Christmas stories, he's the king of the Jews. He is not of David. He's not even Jewish. And they didn't like that either. 
In fact, it looks like only a few people knew their Davidic lineage. Only a few people understood they were of the line of David. And those few people were kind of gathered in an enclave, a family group up north in a small town that today we know as Nazareth. And as those people gathered up there and had been together, what we understand is that these people knew we're of the line of David. This is the house of David. We're the family of David. And so we know that they got to be of Abraham. They got to be from Judah. They've got to come through David. And in fact, they're going to come in a time period where it looks like David's family is exhausted and there's no kings. We know that from a man named Isaiah. Isaiah writes in the 600s in his prophecies. And as he writes it out, I can never remember which way it is. There we go. He writes it this way. There's, their stump shall come, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And what notice here, there's a stump. Typically, a tree was the sign of your kingdom. Your kingdom would be chopped down, would be felled, and from that fallen lack of kings, a new shoot would rise. In fact, in the, in the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, in some of the versions you'll read out there, they'll sing, Come Rod of Jesse. And that's from this text. Jesse was the father of David. And David is the stump. And so what they're saying is this new shoot is birthing forth from David's line to start a new way. When it looks like it's over, there came this new king born. Now, let me ask you a question. Who of these messiahs that were all claiming this could say that one, they came from the, came from the lineage of David at a time period when David's kingdom was gone, that they were truly from David, that they were of all these other lineage, and that their teachings and what they did is going to bless the entire world. Last time I checked, John the other Christ doesn't have a lot of teachings out there that are known anywhere. But Jesus is known around the globe. And Jesus is known as the Christ in both Islam and Christianity, and that's everywhere. And wherever his teachings have gone and are obeyed, so come the blessings that come with his teachings. Economics rise, freedoms rise, education rises. All of these things rise with the coming of the gospel and the comings of the teachings of Jesus, of self-sacrifice and love. Who else has been a blessing to the nations? He didn't have any control over his ancestry, but he was born of the house of David. He was born to all of these things and fulfilled them. And he had no control over his ancestry. He had no control over where he was born either. And we all know where he was born. Where was he born? Everybody say it. Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem, but they didn't know that then. They didn't know where the Messiah was coming. Unless you had some, some of the Hebrew scriptures and you had studied them, you would have known then that he came from Bethlehem because in Micah, in 686, he actually writes, but you, O Bethlehem, I never say this right, Ephrathah, if you say it with confidence, I'm just saying, Ephrathah, okay, but let's move on, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who, or for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And what we have here is the prediction that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Now, that doesn't make any sense unless there was that census that drew him in from Nazareth into Bethlehem, and yet there he is. He is born in a city that people of David weren't dwelling in any longer. And so suddenly we have another prediction and another piece that fits in. In fact, as we move forward, he can't control his birth. Now, these are a little bit more um, mocked in our culture, but let me, let me pull you forward in this for a second. 
we can't control the way we are born either. And Jesus was born, had a particular birth. Here, in Genesis again, at the beginning of time, Moses writes that after humanity has fallen, there's a, there's a sense where God punishes the evil, the fallen angel, Satan, as a serpent, punishes him. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now note this. I'm going to read this to you because we don't pick it up very quickly. It says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, not Adam, and between your offspring. That was the word seed. In fact, it's translated into Greek, sperma. Your sperma and her sperma. Time out. Last time I checked, women don't have sperma. Anybody, anybody agree with me on that one? They don't. How can a woman have offspring? It would be Adam's offspring. The prediction is it will come from the woman, not from the man. Well, that's been curious for centuries. How is this going to work out? Isaiah comes along then and he proclaims this. In Isaiah 7, 14, he has this prediction again from the 600s. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's where that word comes from. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come, O come. You whose reputation, because the name and reputation go together. You whose reputation is God is with us. Born of a virgin. What's interesting is two biographers of Jesus who lived at the time period of Jesus, one who knew him was one of his followers who had walked with Jesus, knew his family, named Matthew, writes in his biography of the, of the birth of Jesus. And as he's talking about it from Jesus' father's perspective, Joseph, he actually indicates this. Joseph was going to divorce his, wi- divorce his wife, divorce Mary, who is actually just betrothed to him, means his fiancée, because she was found with, to be with child. And the angel comes and says, no, don't do it. She's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people, which is what Yeshua means, Yahweh saves. He's going to save their people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Moves on. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, so that she indeed was a virgin. Dr. Luke, who was a physician in the ancient world, had did research and studied what the teachings of Jesus was and what the early church was, and he wrote in his biography about the situation. In fact, likely having interviewed Mary himself, he goes on to say, and the angel said to Mary at the announcement, don't be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom. There will be no end. You guys notice he's in the line of David. He's going to be this one who comes through. He's this person that they're looking for, and he's going to be born to her. And she answers this, how will this be so since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, will be, the child born to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, some of you are going like, come on, the virgin birth thing again? 
This is ridiculous, Greg. We, we, we know virgins don't give birth, and, we, blah, 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 and, and sometimes there is because they're messing around, other things happen, and, and there's all this conversation about virgin births out there. And here's the thing. What we miss is the fact that the, the angel doesn't say, oh yeah, God's just going to make you pregnant. No, he says the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. We miss out that this is a picture that is found in page one of, your, of the Bible, page one on Genesis, where the Holy Spirit is hovering over the deep of the earth. And as God is creating by his power and his word, he's saying in the same way that he created with the power then, he's going to create again. And let's stop and think here for a minute. We think science disproves God and all this stuff. I would argue with you completely the opposite. I think science is more and more confirming the existence of God every time we engage in more scientific endeavor. But if there is a God and he exists and he has spoken in the ways that we've talked about, don't you think that he has the ability to finish off an ovum's DNA? If he can create the laws of science, don't you think he has the availability of the laws of science to use them as he sees fit? To accomplish the very things that he's looking for? And you may think I'm being absolutely unscientific. I'd love to argue with it about, about, about it with another way, because if we as humans are trying to finish off a DNA, you don't think God can figure it out? And what you have here is, again... Prediction after prediction after prediction, which built expectation upon expectation upon expectation. What we see is every single one of them fall right on Jesus, who is at the right time between the building of the temple and the destruction of the temple, when everybody was expecting it, and it's at the end of all those years that were predicted, here he comes on the scene proclaiming that he is the Messiah. Not only that, proclaiming he's the Son of God. Not only that, proclaiming that his word, he is the blessing to the nations, and he has attracted the nations. By the way, I'm not Jewish, are you? He's attracted the nations. And all of this predicted over and over and over again throughout thousands of years of history of Jewish writings that we can show are older than Jesus. In fact, if this is all true, you can expect something else at Christmas. You can expect the freedom from sin and death. Look again at your song sheet with me. If I can find my song sheet. What we have here is he says, ransom captive Israel. Verse 2, come thou dayspring. That means come sunrise. It comes from a Zechariah's celebration of the birth of, of, birth of John the Baptist found in the book of, uh, of Luke. And he says, come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. How are we supposed to, what has Jesus done? He's, he's pushed away the death. He's pushed away the night, the fallenness, the darkness, the division of our time. In fact, if you can read down in verse 1 or down in verse 2 of Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, he says, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring, by thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise to us thy glorious throne. He's giving us heaven. He's given us everything that we have ever longed for to link us and unify us together from um, as it says in verse one born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us let us find our rest in thee how do we know that these are the expectations we should hold how do we know these are the things that we can believe that jesus has accomplished i want to read you from the bible something it's a great poem and i and i want i want you guys to hear it and i think it will help you see what jesus has done it starts this way it says for he 
grew up before him like a young plant. Like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, both terms for sin. Upon him was the chastisement that had brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Uh, We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had, not, although he had done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his land. And so there's this picture. Who does that sound like to you? Say it out loud. But it's not about Jesus. Not originally. This was written not by Paul. It was written not by Peter, not by any of his biographers. This was written in the 600s BC by a man named Isaiah. And as he wrote that passage, he actually predicts multiple, if not seven different things that Jesus would accomplish from dying and burying our sins and removing our guilt so that we could be forgiven. What you see is that God was trying to get our attention about something. He was trying to tell us, I am bringing someone who is my servant, who is going to suffer and bear all of our sins. You want to know who he is? He's the one who's going to be from Abraham. He's going to come from Judah. He's going to come from David. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to come in a certain time period, and he's going to cut off looking like he did nothing. But what he did is he saved us from our sins. This is predicted hundreds of years before Jesus. And you think, well, it had to be written after Jesus was here. That had to be edited or something. No, we have an actual document, the actual manuscript from several hundred years before Jesus, about 150, 200 years BC. It's called the Great Isaiah Scroll, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can actually look at it. This is, this is the one. I can't show it to you without permission from the uh, Israeli Museum. Uh, I couldn't get that permission, so what you got to do is go look it up yourself. So I gave you the, uh, the way, place to do it. You can look it up on your phone right now. And what you're going to see is a document that's literally older than Jesus walked the earth with the same words. Predicted with great expectation that you and I, 
might hear what God wants us to hear. He wasn't quiet. He was yelling and screaming for centuries that he was going to do something. Please listen. Please listen. Please listen. There is hell at stake. Our judgment is at stake. We will be standing before the God who made us and we will have to answer for our sins if we do not listen to what God's been trying to get the attention of humanity for centuries over. Now, What's he done? Let me take you back to Daniel one more time. In this time period, it says in those 490 years, it would finish their rebellion. It would put an end to their sin. It would atone for their guilt. It would bring in everlasting righteousness. It would confirm the prophetic vision. I I think it did that. I think Jesus dealt with our sin. I think he overcame our guilt. I think he's ushered in a righteousness that is built and built and built century upon century that you and I are the great grandchildren of that great endeavor and we enjoy the freedoms we enjoy today and the technologies that we enjoy today. He anointed a holy place and it was, it was torn down in the right time period. But it also said in Samuel that, hey, isn't he going to build a temple? I don't know. It doesn't look like Jesus did that. Well, actually, here's what happened. He who came as Emmanuel, God with us, is the one who died so that God would be in us. See, he didn't choose, God chose no longer to live in buildings. He chose to live in humanity. And that if you would receive what Jesus has done, be forgiven of your sins, God would move into your life as well. And what happens is he gives us the opportunity to be known by him. He gives us an opportunity to dwell with him, that he becomes our father and we become forgiven. This is what's offered to us. And here's the beautiful thing. It's given to you as a gift. You don't earn it. You don't try to be good after all the mess you've made. I know you've lied. You've lusted. You've cheated. You've hated. You've hurt people. You've done things you don't want your mom to know about, right? We all have. It's the beauty of what Jesus did is he said, I want you to gather you together in a group of people who you can confess your sins and be open and honest about who you are and still be loved because we're all a mess and he's transforming us because it's what he did and the gift he gave us that shapes us. Not what you do and how to be more virtuous and virtue signal and all that stuff that you feel like you need to do because the culture's telling you. No, what you need to be is somebody who's forgiven and set free because one day you will stand before God. And I pray that you have the gift he's given you. It's a gift, it's free unearned and undeserved, but he wants to give it to you. And he's been yelling and screaming about it for a long, long time. And I want to give you a chance to receive it. Would you bow your heads with me? You may be here this morning and you know where you're at in your life. And what I hope you saw is that God has been on a mission for a very long time to capture your attention to tell you that there's an expectation of a great gift at Christmas, a gift that forgives you of your sins, a gift that can set you free of the guilt that you're carrying with you. You can receive it right now. And if that's you and you know that you need to receive that, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. The way you let me know is just saying, I'm just putting your hand up saying, I need that gift. I need to be forgiven of my sins. 
I need to receive that gift today. I need to receive what God's been yelling and screaming about. If that's you, would you put your hand up? I want to pray with you. You're just indicating to me that you want to make that decision today. Put it up high enough that I can see it just because I'm, I'm looking around the whole room. So if this is your first time, you would like to receive that, and maybe it's been a long time. Just put that hand up, and I'd love to pray with you. Just pray with me in this way. Just say, God, I know you've been trying to show me. And trying to show me that I have sin, and I see it. You've been trying to show me that you have a gift in Jesus, and I see it. I want to receive that now. Would you forgive me of my sins? Make me new. And lead me from here, please. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.